0: Well, it occurred to me that there are one or two approaches to the way that people interact with God. And that has come across really pretty clearly in two stories, one told by Jesus and one told about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a story about Jesus. He was invited over to uh, the house of a Pharisee. And he sat down to dinner. And as he, they were sitting there, uh, a woman came in to Jesus and she began to anoint his feet with ointment and uh, wiped them with her hair. And she was crying and her, her tears mixed with the ointment and she cleaned his feet. And... The, the Pharisees said, how, how can this be? If you really are the Messiah, you'll know what kind of woman that is who's touching you right now. How awful. And Jesus said, you know, when I came, to, when I came into your house, you didn't wash my feet, but she has anointed my feet and is washing them with her hair. See, there were two approaches. There's the approach of the Pharisee who is in control and in charge and wants, you know, everyone to know that Jesus is on his side at his house. And then there's the woman who is broken and crying and loving Jesus for who he is. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus drew from that. And he said, You know, let me ask you a question. There's there's someone who has been, or there are two servants who have have had a master, and both of them owed him money. One a little, one a lot. Both were forgiven. Who do you suppose loved the master the most? And they said, "Well, we think the one that was forgiven the most probably loves the most." And you say that's the way it is with this woman as well. You see. There's one of two ways you can go with this. You can be on the side of the Pharisee where, you know, you're happy, you're proud, you're satisfied that you're doing the right thing and that God is on your side. You're sort of in charge of the situation. Or you can respond in faith and love to Jesus like the woman did. This is apparently important to Jesus. He told he told his own story about this. And he said, You know, there in the temple one day there were two men who went up to pray. <laughs> not surprisingly, he said one of them was a Pharisee. And the Pharisee began to pray and he said, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people Sinners and evil and even like well, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I do my prayers. I, I, I tithe. I do everything I'm supposed to do. And then Jesus said, that there was in the back of the room with his head in his hands a man who was broken and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, only one of these went back to his house justified. You see, there, there, there are two ways to approach God. With self-righteousness, with the certainty that God is on your side, that you're super you know, happy that you're doing the right thing and everybody ought to notice. And those other folks aren't doing the right thing. Or there's this humble, broken way that says, you know what? Be merciful to me, a sinner. And I say that because the gospel of Jesus Christ is intended for both groups. And it has a different effect on each one. In fact, in Romans, as we, uh, in fact, there's a the most central discussion of the good news of Jesus uh, points out the response that this side ought to have. this says all who, I mean, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And those who fall short of God's glory, they are justified by His grace as a gift. Not because they're doing it right. But as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation simply means that God's Wrath is completely satisfied by the blood of Jesus, just like we have sung. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a call to this Pharisee to have faith in Jesus and this is the effect that the Gospel should have on him. Then, what becomes of boasting? What becomes of boasting? There is no place for pride. There is no place for this person over here to say, I am thankful I am not like that one. In the Gospel, Jesus Christ comes to shut down boasting. Boasting. Because it's received by grace through faith. Of course, there is this other way to interact with God the tax collector or the sinful woman's way of interacting with God. And I mean, I really hope there aren't very many of those here this morning, and I'm pretty sure there are a lot of those here this morning. problem is over here, we're not really humbled enough. We're not really brought to a place where we can, in fact, turn from our sin and turn to God. And so there's still this self-righteousness, this self-satisfaction. But the problem over here is the one that's addressed this morning in our text in Romans 8. The problem over here is it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. It can't be that Jesus could simply pronounce your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. It's too good to be true. Surely, it's going to break down somewhere. Surely, it's not going to last all the way to the end. Surely. Well, that's what He takes up in Romans chapter 8. And, and so the, one, the verses that we read earlier, I want you to, to look uh, at verse 31. We're going to look mostly at 33 and 34, but this is, the, this is sort of the broad stroke to which you must respond this morning. What are we going to say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? if you're a tax collector, if you're a sinner, if you're over here begging God for mercy, do you realize that God is for you? And if He's for you, who can be against you? In fact, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He might give us some things. He might give us things that last for a little while. He might give us things that at some point will end, right? That's the way this person views it. This person views it like, you know what? I am so undeserving. If you only knew what I have done, you probably couldn't forgive all of it. You might forgive part of it, I give some things, but not all of it. That's the struggle. That's the struggle that sinners have coming to God. It's like, I'm not completely sure that this is going to take. I'm not completely sure that God is going to forgive everything. I'm not completely sure that I am actually as free as the Bible says I can be can't really be that good. And so he takes up this issue here in verse 33 by asking who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. So I'm going to slow down and I want... You to realize that while people who are over here and satisfied with themselves and sort of full of themselves confident that because they 've done things right, God will love them, they have no ground for assurance. they have no reason to be certain because the gospel comes as a gift and it does away with boasting and if if you 're here this morning, thinking that what you're doing here is somehow getting you in good favor with God, that that's the point of coming to church, then you're going to be empty when you leave. That's not what's going on here. But rather, what's going on is that sinners are begging for mercy and we are doing our best To believe that God will in fact grant that mercy. But the problem is we have a hard time believing that he actually will. And I think that that woman had a hard time believing it. I think that the the tax tax collector had a hard time believing it. I think that because I have a hard time believing it. That yes, in fact, it is that simple. And so what? We have in this text are three reasons, really, that God wants you to believe that this is in fact as good as He says it is. And it comes to us, He comes at us asking questions Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, this isn't probably the question that I would ask, but this gets at the heart of the matter. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Now think about it. Who, who does bring charges, right? Who, who would bring a charge or an accusation against you? Well, the Scripture is clear. There's at least one person who would do that. His name is Satan. Satan. In Revelation chapter twelve, verse ten, he is called the accuser of the brethren, and we're told that he accuses us before God day and night. so there's somebody that's going to bring the charge, right? He has made that his job to point out to God all the things that I'm doing wrong, all the times that i have that I have sinned against God, all the times that I have done my own thing and gone my own way. Satan is making sure that God remembers those. But Revelation also tells us that he's cast down. It also tells us that his accusations count for nothing. That he's a weenie. It tells us that that Satan can't really do anything to you because of the victory that Jesus has won. That's the message of Revelation. Revelation though he will bring accusation, it will not stick. Who else can bring a charge against you? There are a lot of other people that would be happy to do that, wouldn't they? They'd be happy to bring a charge against you that you're somehow a bigot, that somehow you're narrow-minded, that somehow you're unloving or unkind because you believe in a God who is holy. And who has uh, standards of right and wrong by which he will judge people. You might not even like to say that, but that is what your Bible teaches, and you believe it, and so other people will bring a charge against you that you are somehow inferior, you're somehow wrong for believing those things. And what does this say? who's going to bring a charge against god 's elect it's God who justifies they can bring it they can say it but that's that's not the, the trust me this broken woman who is washing jesus' feet with her tears is not in the business of condemning other people that approach that approach to God is not the her heart is broken. And you see, if you're responding to God in that way, and your heart is broken, other people can charge you with whatever, and that is not going to stick. Because it's God who justifies. There's still another who would bring a charge against you. This is the one you hear from, I think, most often. I'm going to guess that you bring a charge against you don't you That in the quiet moments when you're really thinking uh, about it and you're over here like that um tax collector in the back of the room with his head in his hands saying God be merciful to me you're the one you're the one who says you know what He probably not going to do that How how could he forgive me I'm a loser. I'm awful. All those things, whatever, whatever script you play, right? And you play a script. Most of us play a script. I mean, there might be one or two of you who really got this dialed in. And don't play a script like that. But most of us do. And what he's trying to get to here is who is going to bring a charge against God's elect. Are you going to charge yourself are you going to declare yourself guilty when, in fact, God declares you not guilty? You can't even charge yourself with something's going to stick. Well, there's one other person who could bring a charge. And this is the po- I think this is the point of it. Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. God Himself could bring the charge, couldn't He? God is the One who judges the secrets of all of us. God is the One who knows your heart. God is the One who is perfectly right and perfectly good and perfectly merciful and perfectly wise and in every way knows how you deviate from perfect. And from the standard that says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, right? And that seems to be the point here. Is that the omnipotent Creator God of the universe who could stand as your judge? Decides not to. And so anybody else who is less qualified to judge, what are they going to bring? Who is going to bring any charge against God's elect? I think it's, it's not insignificant that he describes his people with this term. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Against God's chosen ones. Against the ones whom God has pulled out himself. See, God God could ask this question anyway. Who's going to bring a charge against the believers? Who's going to bring a charge against the church? Who's going to bring a charge against um, those who have trusted Jesus? He could say anything he wants. But what he says is, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect, against the ones that God has already determined to bless and to save? It's not like God's going to change His mind, right? That, that's, that's, I think, His point. If God has already chosen, God's not going to unchoose. If God's already set His affection on somebody. Why would you think he's going to change it? Especially then when you get to the last part of the verse and here's here's the first reason. The reason that nobody will be successful in bringing an accusation against you or me is because God has already justified. God has made justified means made right. God has already made you right. By his son. We read Romans 3 already. It said, because God put Jesus forward to satisfy His wrath, everything that is wrong with you or with me, by which about which God would judge us, all of those things are now covered and taken care of by Jesus. And God has justified us by faith. So it is important that you notice what the Scripture says, especially in Romans 3 there, what's very clear, that God justifies by faith. You must respond to this news. The news that God will make you right. He'll make you right if you trust Him to make you right. He won't make you right if you're this Pharisee over here claiming to be right on your own. That's not going to happen. But over here, begging Him for mercy expressing your love for Him, He will make you right. He makes you right. He justifies you. Who then will bring anything against you with any success? If the judge has already declared your innocence, there's going to be nobody succeed at accusing you. And so it's God's determination to count you as right that gives you the complete security and confidence before God. In spite of all the things that you've done. In spite of all those bad decisions that still haunt you. In spite of the fact that you know you haven't done everything that you could do. That's right. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus having done everything that He could do to save you and make you right. And that actually is the next thing. Who is it that's going to condemn? This next question is really just a restatement of the first one, but it's the, it's the difference in the answer that is significant. But again, I don't want you to skip by this too easily because what happens when we skip... When we give the Sunday school answer, like that's what, okay, that's what I call it, the Sunday school answer, the one that you know you're supposed to give, that, you know, how do you have eternal life? Well, you trust Jesus, He saves you, blah, blah, blah. When you're doing that, you're missing the point that this is real honest to goodness condemnation, that this is real honest to goodness charge against you that could be level. I mean, think about it. You are right when you accuse yourself of all the things you've done. Satan is right when he points out to God and says, don't you remember what God has done? Other people are even right. That your attitude is not always good. And they sometimes do have a legitimate beef against you. And God is certainly right to accuse you. So don't pass over the fact that this condemnation is legit. Look what it says here in John 3.18. I mean, you're familiar with John 3.16, right? That God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but has everlasting life. And we say, oh, that's great news. That's the Sunday school answer, right? But here, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. You can't ignore the fact that this is real condemnation. They're condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. They've gone about trying to establish themselves as the one who is central or important or somehow deserving of God's blessing. When in fact, if that's true, they stand under God's condemnation. But those who believe that only Jesus can save them from that condemnation, who believe in Him, they are not condemned. But you need to know that that is a very real thing. And so that's only then those who are in Christ Jesus who are free from condemnation. Those who believe in Jesus, who have trusted it, He is the one that is going to shelter them from God's wrath or condemnation. Those are the ones that have, that are free from it. But it is legitimate. And God does have a case against you were He to press that case. But He's not going to. See, I mean, it's just too good to be true. He goes over and over and... It comes back to the fact that it is just not going to happen for those who believe. Who's who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who, who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at God's right hand. The one who perfectly satisfied God's demands the the one who did what you do but did it without sin the one who now is standing at God's right hand he's not going to condemn Because He was the one who died. More than that, was raised. See, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He was stricken by God and smitten by Him and afflicted. And God laid on Him the iniquity of us all. See, that's why Christ died. He didn't die because He deserved to die. He died Because you deserve to die and so do I. He died and was raised so that this woman who is crying at His feet, she can be forgiven. In fact, that's what Jesus said. Go. Your sins are forgiven. That this sinner who sits with His head in His hands and says, be merciful to Me, a sinner, Yes, in fact, He won't face condemnation by admitting His sin and confessing it before God and pleading for mercy. Jesus is the One who took that sin on the cross, died for it, rose again so that God accepted His sacrifice, His death, and completely Satisfied His wrath on the cross. And raised Jesus at His right hand. That is the guarantee that there's no condemnation. None. Not a little bit. Not for now and then God's taken it back. Nobody is going to condemn. Because God justifies because Christ died and rose again. Those are the first two reasons that you must believe that Jesus has secured your way to God. It is secure. You didn't behave your way in. Not like this Pharisee over here. You, didn't, you can't behave your way out. No, you will not stand under accusation or condemnation because of Christ Jesus who died and was raised... Is that the right hand of God, and in fact is interceding for you. Here's the third reason why you absolutely have to know this is secure. Jesus, the very one who would be the prosecuting attorney, is in fact the defense attorney. He is in fact pleading your case before God. It is I mean and now think about it. If God's gonna to listen to somebody, is he gonna to listen to the accusation of Satan? Or is he gonna to listen to the intercession of Jesus? That one's easy, right? It's easy. And yet we don't believe it. And yet we're so conscious of our failure, so conscious of the fact that we have not done what God expects us to do. That we don't deserve All this blessing. And so we wonder, how could God really do it for us? Well, one of the ways that God really does it for us is that Jesus Himself is pleading with God to do it for me. In fact, this is what it says in 1 John. It's just as simple and clear as this. My little children, I'm writing these... Things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, right? If you do sin, that's our problem. It's sin. It's our it's our breaking with God. It's our doing our own thing. It's our own uh, independence, you might say. That causes us these accusations. That gives us the the realization that we would stand under condemnation. But If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have someone who will silence that accusation. We have someone who will silence the condemnation. We have someone who has won by his death and resurrection the victory over Satan who would otherwise accuse you. You have in Jesus, the best advocate that you could possibly hope for before God the Father. So I'm just, I'm just, want to stop and let that sink in. Because if you're, if your little voice is like my little voice. I'm saying you have the best advocate. You have the best intercessor. You have Jesus Christ who died, was raised as the right hand of God. God has justified you. We will not accuse you. We will not condemn you. And if your little voice like my little voice, then yeah, but. Isn't it? But there isn't any of that left. There isn't anything like that that you have left. Whatever shred of self loathing that you may have, however justified it may be, God has already committed Himself to loving you no matter what. Unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And there's nothing you can do to make it go away. If you do sin, that'd be the thing you could do, wouldn't it? But if you do that one thing that you could do to make it go away, it won't go away because you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Take a deep breath. You need to silence the voice in your head that accuses you. That tells you it's too good to be true. That tells you God really doesn't love you that much. Because He really does. And that really is what Romans 8 is all about. That yes, in fact, God does love you that much. That He gave you His Son to die for your sins, to rise again, to be at His right hand, and to make intercession for you. It's just so great because the thing is, I I find myself saying the same thing all the time. Because I need to hear the same thing all the time. That it isn't, Scott, why don't you be a good boy? There's no good news in that. The good news is that Jesus has died and rose again and now makes intercession for me. Period. That's The good news. And that has been the good news from the very first day until now. And it doesn't change and there's nothing that I do or nothing that you do that changes that. And the beauty of it is that it's that simple and it's that good and it's just exactly what God intended for you and for me. And so, to remind you of that again, to help you remember that, we're, we're going to actually have what you might say a hands-on experience here to remind you that God does really love you. And we're going to celebrate communion. And when we celebrate communion, that really is what you're supposed to hear. You're supposed to hear Jesus Himself say, this is My body. It's broken for you. It's broken for all of those things that you have done that you'd otherwise be condemned for. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is God's promise that He would forgive your sin, that He would be your God, you would be His people, that He'd put His Spirit within you, that He would dwell with you. All that new covenant promise is. Sealed in the blood of Jesus. And we're going to remember that as we celebrate communion. So I want to invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus, I want to encourage you to celebrate with us. If you're here just uh, exploring this, then we're really glad you're here. And don't feel like you have to do something that you don't understand yet. That's fine. But we're going to remind ourselves that Jesus died and rose again for us uh, in the way that Jesus wanted us to remind ourselves by um, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so there's two tables in the front and two in the back. And I just want to encourage you during the next song to get out of your uh, seats and, and go to one of the tables and get the elements and return to your seat and we'll celebrate uh, together in just a moment. But I, I do hope that as you do this, you'll think about it and, and it really will finish off all of those accusations, all of that uh, guilt and shame that keeps reminding you that God couldn't possibly mean what He says because He does mean what He says. And He is intent on loving you and forgiving you. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, um, this is simple and true. It is simple and true that You have loved us and You sent Your Son. What's not simple is all of the conversation that we have with ourselves that make us think that we don't deserve it, that it isn't real, that it can't possibly happen. Father, I praise You that You have pledged Yourself to save those who believe. To completely not condemn them to completely free them from accusation. Not just partway, but all the way. God, would You help us to hang on to it by faith 100% and help us to enjoy and to love Your Son. We ask it in His name. Amen.